Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. In each episode, we seek to shine a light on successful progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer practical ideas to help drive change. And today we look at the world slightly laterally. We always talk about where best practice can be found and the hunt for talents that is likely on our doorsteps. And we have two amazing guests. Our first guest is Jazz Bogle. Jazz is the Deputy Director for Civil Service Diversity and Inclusion, and based in the Cabinet Office, she is responsible for the delivery of the UK Civil Service DNI strategy, intent on meeting the ambition to be the most inclusive employer in the UK by 2020. Jazz has enjoyed a long and varied career working in the health sector in many guises, and most notably, Jazz was the DNI specialist in both the NHS and at the Department of Health at regional and national levels. Our second guest is Rosa Morgan Baker, Head of Partnerships at the Brokerage, a social mobility charity based in the City of London. Rosa works closely with companies to help build their HR and corporate social responsibility programmes to attract and support young people from non-advantaged backgrounds. As a specialist in financial and professional services, Rosa has worked with leading institutions across the capital, helping them to deliver greater diversity. As always, we invite each guest to take a minute at the start of the show to talk about what they're particularly focused on at the moment, and then we take the discussion from there. So Rosa, let's start with you. What are you particularly working on? Um, well, at the brokerage, we work with young people aged um, 10, um, so last year of primary school, all the way through to undergraduate, helping them at each stage to be able to connect with professional and financial services. So we're quite niche in that way. Um, one of the things we're particularly proud of that we're working on at the moment is working with companies to build their talent pipeline programmes. So bringing young people in from an early age, getting them to see what happens within the organisation, getting people from the company really excited about working with young people, and then working with them over a number of years to help them into um, the professions. Um, We're really trying to get companies to understand that it's not just about um, picking the best and the brightest from the best universities, but really trying to grow your own homegrown talent. There's so much incredible um, talent right here in London. Um, So it's helping to connect the um, young Londoners with those employers um, and making sure that they get into um, the roles within professional financial services. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And we're delighted you could join us today. So, so, so Jazz, um, what are you focused on at the moment? So I'm really focused on our wider strategy. And you've, you've mentioned the strategy. Our strategy is really about creating a civil service that is going to be reflective of the people we serve and our business, our bottom line is to improve outcomes for the public. So if we don't represent the public that we serve, then we're not going to be able to meet those outcomes. Um, And in doing that, our strategy focuses around three areas. And the first is around increasing diversity within our very senior civil service, so the very top end of our organisations, and making sure that our leaders and decision makers um, are reflective of the communities we serve, not just the rank and file of our organisations. Becoming more inclusive and the shift towards inclusion, recognising that we've got to be more inclusive in order to hold on and attract and retain all of that diverse talent is a massive priority for us. And for the civil service... um, quite a new thing that we're going to be doing is really put ourselves out there to be accountable and to be transparent about progress that we should be making. So a key theme within our strategy is to publish data and to make sure that we're able to demonstrate progress towards some targets that we want to meet. And and to what degree were you actually involved in the creation of the strategy itself? Was, was, that, was that your work? Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, blood, sweat and tears. Um, so I arrived before the strategy was published, well before. Um, so I arrived while 
government was focused its uh, had focused its attention around the talent action plan. Talent action plan was our civil service wide strategy. It was a plan that was relatively tactical. So it had in it those things that you do, those good practice things that you do to remove barriers to progression within organisations and to attraction within um, within our civil service organisations. Um, that was all great, but it wasn't really kind of the belt and braces, big whole systems type change that you'd want to see in an organisation to create that level of diversity and change. Um, and also there was quite a strong political shift with the current prime minister when she came into post. Um, a huge interest from her in, in that wider political landscape to create a more just society, to look at challenging those burning injustices that she talks about. And so there was a, um, a significant attention, and rightly so, placed on the civil service. So the challenge on the civil service was to make sure that it was able to sort its house out um, so that we we had credibility with public services. We were telling them to be more diverse and inclusive. And did you look to the corporate world as well in in kind of figuring out what that strategy looked like? Absolutely. And actually, we've been talking and working with the corporate world for a very long time, both in terms of our new strategy and also some of our previous work that we've been doing over the recent years. So we published our strategy towards the end of 2017 and well before then, um, so from that point, um, about 18 months before then, we'd already started working on what we want to do around social mobility and that for me is the area that feels most exciting about our agenda going forward. Um, The work that we've been doing with the corporate sector, so with big financial firms, but also a whole range of other um, big major employers have been partners with us in developing a set of industry standard measures by which organisations can measure social mobility within their workforce. And how do you define social mobility? Ah, now that's the $64 million question. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, so social mobility for us is about the breadth and depth of, of, of the social background that we reflect in society. So social mobility for us would be about making sure that we've got a much higher proportion of people that come from um, non-privileged backgrounds within the civil service. The civil service is, is we're 400,000 people who work in the civil service. The vast majority of those, when I say vast majority, about 85% of, of the civil service actually work in very operational roles, very customer-facing, public-facing type of roles. So the person who will meet you if you have to go to a job centre or the person who you speak to on the phone for your tax um, queries and questions. These are all civil servants. The person who stamps your passport as you come in and out of the country, that's a civil servant. Where, as well as Sir Jeremy Haywood, who's the Cabinet Secretary, policy wonks like me who who write policy and live, work in Whitehall for a living. So the diversity of type of role within the civil service is vast. And what we have is very much of the bit of the civil service that makes policy, that is directly affecting at a macro level the public's interest um, is made up significantly of people that come from quite privileged backgrounds and what we need to make sure is whilst we that privilege isn't a problem we need to make sure that we have greater social diversity so people with different experiences and perspectives those are valuable to us as policymakers and as deliverers and arbiters of public service all of that diversity is as important to us as the usual suspect type stuff so the ethnicity and the gender and 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 the other characteristics. And, and you were saying at the beginning about uh, sort of looking at this through different lenses and one of them was about uh, senior levels and the ascension almost to senior levels is something we talk about a lot on the podcast about how actually you, you're helping 
um, greater diversity at the top by by helping people on that that kind of career journey as well. And, and is that part of the strategy as well? Looking at that 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 journey to power, absolutely, and leadership in yeah, absolutely. And so we know we've actually made significant progress in the diversity of our very senior roles within the civil service, particularly around gender. So we know that we have in the last ten years seen the senior civil service, and that's the top five percent of civil servants in terms of grade. Um, so these are people who essentially run the country, as it were. But these people, uh, so 10 years ago, about only a third of, or sorry, not even a quarter of the senior civil service was made up of women. We're now looking at something in the region of 46 to 48%. Um, and that's across the entire senior civil service of mm-hmm. about 4,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very senior level, so our permanent secretary, so these are people that are responsible for running a government department. Um, of, of, of Out of 36 permanent secretaries, a third are women. And we're on track. And we look at our pipeline, our director general level, that's the level below permanent secretaries. We are looking at being on track for getting a 50-50 balance um, over the coming years. And so that looks really successful. We've made great strides around sexual orientation, so our LGBT representation at those senior levels, albeit our data is a bit ropey, and I think that's probably the case in most most areas. So our declaration rates... I think you'd be rates, alone there, actually. Well, <laughs> quite, yeah. So our declaration rates should be much better, and we're working on that. But based on the data we do have, actually it shows us that our LGBT, LGB um, uh, representation is very, very high. So it's, 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 it's in excess of the general um, economic active population. The areas where we have not made progress as fast at, at all as fast as anyone would want to see is, is around ethnic minor, uh, ethnic minorities and people with disabilities in our most senior grades. And that data, we took a very clear line. We took an evidence-based approach in the development of our strategy. We decided if the data was clear, the data is absolutely clear, it's emphatic, that these are the areas we've made no progress over the last five years or where we have, it's been painfully slow. So right now we have um, the... the of ethnic minority representation in our senior civil service. It's at 5.9% um, across our senior civil service. But if you look at our very top grade, our permanent secretary grade, it's zero. Uh, we have no ethnic minority permanent secretaries. If our, for our disabled um, workforce, we have about, it's somewhere in the region of about 33 3.9%, depending on where you are. Um, and that again, that we have no people that are with a registered disability in our permanent secretary cadre. Um, and if you compare both of those to the with the economically active population, it's about eleven to twelve percent for both groups. Um, we're falling way behind. And if you in the case of ethnicity, the vast majority of our senior civil servants are based in London or the home counties. Two thirds are. So we ought to be much higher, even still, given the ethnic diversity of the professional population mm-hmm. in London and the southeast. Mm-hmm. We are nowhere near as reflective as the kind of the estimated 20 to 25 to 30 percent depending on what sector you're talking about so we've got enormous place way to go in that agenda and that's where we're putting all of our energy and i'd love to come back on kind of what do you think is going to drive that change and accelerate that change because one of the things we're, we're really interested on the podcast is thinking about what how you can um sort of ha- what are those leapfrog moments that you can really kind of uh ex- accelerate sort of the pace of change as well and 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 rosa i mean from from your perspective i mean working with uh with young people and sort of listening to jazz talk about things at the highest level but, but uh, tell us a bit more about you know what you're focused on in terms of getting more young execs into particularly for the world of financial services but actually this applies in in, in a, a way beyond there but that's the focus of the podcast as you know and and how 
in terms of driving some of the change around the ethnic minority representation, is there anything you're particularly focused on? Yeah, so really it's about raising awareness of the different types of roles that are available out there for young people, um, and especially the entry-level roles and the um, the plethora of different roles coming out, especially things where you're looking at um, apprenticeships and uh, vocational traineeships and things like that. There are so many different avenues that young people can take. Um, and at the moment, it's really confusing. It's not just confusing for the young person, it's confusing for the schools, it's confusing for businesses half the time as well. So a lot of the work that we're doing is just really raising awareness and helping to demystify so many of the different processes that young people are facing. Um, so it goes right the way back um, from the primary school age, just getting the students actually thinking about um, what happens within different businesses, getting them um, to break down some of those barriers, getting them to think about, OK, well, uh, perhaps I could go and use my communication skills in marketing or similarly, I could use my communication skills in um, in technology or I could use it as an actuary having to um, having to talk about risk with different types of people. It's really getting them to see the skills that they're learning at school and how that translates to the workplace. Um, in terms of helping young people from um, from non-advantaged backgrounds to access those roles, really they don't know that they're out there. So it really is helping them to see that they're out there, see that the skills that they're developing at school um, actually directly relate to those roles and making sure that they're able to present themselves in a professional way so that they can match with their, um, with their privileged counterparts. Um, so, so that's really interesting because what you're saying there is that actually a lot of this comes from looking at the world through a school's lens, not a job definition or job description lens. Is there, is there a disconnect between that? Where are the hurdles between being able to get young uh, people through academia ready for the business and how businesses are attracting talent in, in academia? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, there's a big disconnect between the curriculum and kind of the world work, the world of work in terms of the jobs that young people can go into and actually trying to match the two together. So the curriculum is fantastic. It's really equipping young people. However, you can't always see the links between what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis and what happens in the world of work. So where we come in as kind of the brokerage, we are that broker between the two. So we help the young people to understand where their skills will be able to translate into the world of work. Um, I think one of the key hurdles that young people are uh, facing is the fact that they can see the city um, so they can see it from their bedroom windows, for example. We've got a lot of young people that live in areas such as Lambeth or Hackney, Tower Hamlet, and they can see the city, they can see Canary Wharf from their bedroom windows. However, even though it's geographically really close for them, mentally it's leagues away. So they absolutely cannot picture themselves in those big glass towers, in those buildings doing those sorts of jobs. They don't know anyone that's in there. They don't know anybody who um, has kind of ventured outside of their borough before. They're very borough-centric um, and it can be really scary for them um, having to go into different companies or having to try and look for um, different opportunities for them to be able to succeed in the future in an area that is completely alien to them. And, and how do you overcome that? Yeah, so um, one of the key ways is to help young people from an early age, so kind of that early intervention. Um, we do a lot of work um, with companies helping to work with young people, usually even if it's just for a half day, um, a half day visit, bringing the students out into um, the city or into Canary Wharf, into a, a big um, financial institution and getting them to meet people from different levels, getting them to do a little bit of networking, um, getting them to actually um, start thinking, oh, 
the people that work here are normal, um, which is really a massive part of it. Um, if they're sitting at home playing on their Xbox and they're not entirely sure if they could continue being themselves if they work to work in some of these institutions, um, it's great for them to actually meet people who work there, really enjoy working there um, and can say, actually, it can be for anybody, um, especially for companies as well. I think it's um, the hurdles on both sides. So the students find it difficult, but also companies find it difficult to interact with uh, schools and to interact with students. Um, a lot of the work is about breaking down what they're doing in a way that students are able to digest and where they've got that wealth of knowledge there. They're not necessarily um, equipped to be able to break it down in a way that a young person is going to be able to understand. Can you give us an example of how that comes to life? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for example, if you look at the actuarial profession or if you look at insurance, um, it's a lot about looking at risk, a lot about looking at um, analysing numbers and things like that. But really at the basis of it, it's just taking something quite complicated and explaining it in a simple way. Now, students really get that. They've all had a teacher standing at the front of the classroom and telling them something that they absolutely have no idea about. And so once someone has explained it to them in a way that is easy to break down, they get it and they have that aha moment. They're really good at communicating with each other and sharing with each other their different ideas and having to work as part of a team they're doing it every day um, but a company when they're writing say a job description will have all of these different things that they're looking at um, and they'll say that they really want someone that's proficient in um, analyzing in these languages or in these different ways or looking at these different programs and they're not able to show to the young people exactly what that means in real terms so they're using their corporate language and then the students feel alienated uh, because of it. So what um, what's really useful is getting companies to work with, with people like us, with lots of other organisations out there that can work with companies to help them look at things like their, where they're advertising their placements, um, to look at their um, their job descriptions and their CVs and um, their application forms and things like that, um, to make sure that when they're putting them out there, it's in universally understood language that they don't have any jargon in there that's going to put people off from applying um, and it really is just kind of thinking about the recruitment processes right from the beginning um, to make sure that you're getting out to um, the widest breadth of um, of people. And if you talk about sort of sitting in um, you know, sort of in Lambeth or in uh, Tower Hamlets and look at the world of, of, the, of finance through as you say those skyscrapers and the glass and steel buildings um, and, and feeling sort of a distance from that. I mean in, in terms of the world a civil service, you know, for young, talented, you know, um, f executives of the future sitting in, in various schools. Uh, I mean, the, the world of the civil service must must feel like a, a, a mile away. Are there things that you're, you're looking at in terms of how do you reach that that talent group and, and bring them into the civil service and unbundle it? In, in many regards. Absolutely. We, we, it's, it's a massive priority for us. And in particular, um, a piece of research that was done in 2016 um, by an organisation called The Bridge Group. I think it's an organisation that I know um, uh, the brokerage works with or knows about. Um, the, the Bridge Group, we commissioned to do some work for us to look at the social background, socioeconomic background of people entering our graduate scheme, so our fast stream. This is a really major, highly prestigious graduate scheme. We take on about 1,400 graduates a year across the civil service across a range of professions and functions actually also across the country but the assumption is that all fast streamers have to be able to come to Whitehall and up until a couple of years ago that was exactly the case so people would have to come they'd have to know about the fact that the civil service usually their route into knowing about the civil service as you've said Rosa is they know somebody in the civil service they've 
got some relative or some other connection. They have an understanding of what the civil service is about. We're probably the one of the most invisible and confusing industries to work in that there is. So we pretty much do everything. So we have jobs, like I said, from a policy wonk like me to somebody who works out your tax breakdown Mm -hmm. to somebody that's a mechanic who's an engineer working on you know, kind of designing things for missile launchers in the Ministry of Defence. So you've got this amazing array of types of role and we don't get that out there. So we've done a massive amount of work with graduates in particular, but now we're looking at taking that much, much broader. So where can we look at beyond graduates, really maximise, for example, apprenticeships? And where are we really able to kind of get some better traction with a much broader community of people, prospective kind of potential applicants into entry-level roles into the civil service. Actually, all the stuff that we've done is massive. So we run these internships. So we run two types of summer internships. One is um, we call ESTIP, the Summer Intern, Summer Diversity Internship. And that the ESTIP is a hugely successful programme. We take on about 800 um, graduates or kind of near graduates um, every year over the summer. It's a paid internship. Um, and, it's, and these are internships that are hugely varied and run all the way across the country in different kinds of roles. I have, I have a, an intern starting with me in the summer who's going to be learning about policy making in the civil service another uh, and, and that's what it was, a two, two to three month kind yep, of so they'll internship. be with me for the whole of the summer period mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they'll be with me from the end of june to the beginning of october so it's all of the huge long summer break from university so they'll be with me working and, and real work it's not they're going to sit and do photocopying actually in this case the sdip um, uh, person who's going to be joining me is actually going to be doing a huge project that they were going to have to squeeze into just three months, um, but a huge project basically doing a review of all departmental plans on diversity and inclusion and working with me to assess the quality of those plans. That's a massive undertaking and really quite meaningful. And, and Rosie, are you seeing some of your, your corporate clients taking a very similar sort of view about, because there is there is a debate about internships, which is about, you know, talent for free and all that sort of, sort of a view of the world, which is, um, again, not the topic of the podcast today. But but are you seeing corporates going? Well, this this is a very similar sort of style. We're seeing how well it's working in the civil service, or or are we still a long way from that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there is a lot of um, a lot of passion out there for corporates to be able to. Um, get young people um, in, especially kind of from year 12 and up. Um, and that seems to be um, kind of the key internship age, year 12 and year 13. So and, those, and just to explain that, that's those what two sort of final age? years of sixth form, right. yeah. um, well, those two years of sixth form. Um, so when they're between 16 and 18 years old, um, they're really formative um, years and they're about to go off to maybe um, university or into an apprenticeship, whichever route they decide to go down. Um, we have a um, an internship programme, the City of London Business Traineeship Programme. Um, which focuses on year 13 students, getting them into uh, work placements for six to 13 weeks over that summer between um, sixth form and the working world of sixth form and university um, to really make sure that they're able to get quality experiences of work. Um, And again, it is kind of things like having, um, not just doing a um, photocopying and sticking and um, stapling and things like that but doing real work that's going to add value to the organisation um, what we've seen where companies are doing things like that is that their talent pipe, type, talent pipelines and their talent pool starts to change um, and also their internal culture um, within the organisation start to change so when we have um, our young people going in say at year 13 and they're um, doing 
absolutely incredible things in the organisation. We had one student last year who went into a recruitment firm and billed the highest um, the highest bonus um, over the summer um, because he was absolutely phenomenal. The students are brilliant. Um, and once they've kind of got into um, those areas, once they've ha- had those first connections made, they're able to, um, to really continue their careers within um, those sectors and the companies want them to come back. In fact, just over 25% of the students um, we've placed in professional financial services um, over the last two years have gone back into um, working in those different companies. But it really does depend on where companies are advertising those sorts of um, opportunities. Um, So things like um, the civil service programs are widely advertised and it's fantastic because young people are starting to hear about it you're already starting to hear people within um, within secondary schools talking about the civil service and fast tracks uh, program and things like that which is um, which is amazing however you don't necessarily um, see that with smaller internship programs or smaller work experience programs so if you have a corporate who maybe hasn't um, had the um, the experience of working with different schools um, and they really want to do good they want to be able to have a an inclusive work experience program but the only place that they've advertised it is on their website um, you're not going to get young people coming to you because they don't know about you yet um, and, and is and is the appreciation of the potential sticking point as in where you advertise or don't advertise and also that the creation of those summer projects that you want to bring interns to help you with where does that sit does that sit with a business head or is it an hr or is it a comms where who, who mostly drives this it varies from company to company. I think in the larger companies, if they've got a CSR team um, and a CSR team that talks to the HR team, it doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's if a corporate you, social responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. So if they have a corporate social responsibility team um, and one that talks to their HR team, um, it works really well and they work well together um, to do these sorts of programmes. But, some, but somebody business-wise has to be involved in, in that discussion because they're the ones, it's a bit like the intern who's going to come and sit with you, Jazz. I mean, you've got to be the buyer of, of, the, of the concept. And from from what what is it particularly in your appreciation of the value, obviously the intention to move the diversity inclusion numbers and and metrics along, and and culturally, which which Rosa was talking about as well. But when you are defining uh, that project for the summer, what is the real thing where you sit there and go, this could add value to what I need to do today? Okay, so when I'm defining that project for that individual who's an intern to come and do it, it's because they are going to bring a fresh brain. They're going to be fully capable. It's it's the stuff I'm asking them to do isn't rocket science, but needs careful, hard work and someone that's going to be able to pay attention to detail. So what you're getting usually with somebody that's currently going through a degree, they've done whatever they do, whether it's an IB or an A-level uh, or A-levels at, at, at sixth form, but you're basically getting somebody who knows how to understand and process information and give you an outcome. So I want good analytical reasoning. I want somebody that's able to understand the kind of the, the thing I'm asking them to look for. And that's pretty straightforward stuff. But what you want is somebody that isn't going to be rigid and inflexible in their ways of working, mm-hmm. somebody that's going to have some energy and enthusiasm. And what's really exciting for me, what I, hopefully that's what they get to do, what's, that's what they get to get involved in. What I get out of it, hopefully, is tapping into future talent that people, these are people who are going to be graduates. They're going to be available to a very, very desperate, hungry market. I want them to think of me first. Mm-hmm. I'm in I'm in competition with the finance sector, with mm-hmm. every other sector. I want to get the best talent I possibly can. So if I offer great internships, they're going to think 
they are going to tell and through word of mouth as many people as possible, I hope, that actually working in the civil service was great for me over the summer. I want more of that. I think I can make a difference. And what I want for them to do is to do things that do make a difference. Doing the photocopying doesn't feel very, I mean, it. yes, it's important. So it needs doing. Somebody has to do it. But actually, if I want this to be a proper early talent scheme, which is how I see, how we see our, our, our internships, we pay them. So these aren't free people that come in for us. We pay them and expenses. So this is an investment for us. We, the return on the investment is, is that future talent, and that's really important to us. But what's really important, one of the things that we that we do, um, that we, we we put in straight straight away, was the mentorship and the coaching for, 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 for interns and making sure that, um, recognising that for, for very many, this is going to be the first time they're in this kind of world of work. Mm-hmm. Very often, if you've done, I mean, I remember my, my student years, and I had, had many jobs, most of which were um, behind bars or in shops, mm-hmm. uh, various types, but none of them prepared me for this kind of work that I do now. And actually, what's interesting is for very, and I, I just wasn't coached in that way, I had no life experience that helped me understand what it was to work in the cultural environment that is a corporate, or in my case, a big civil service organisation. So what was really important, what, what what we think is really important for some of our interns is to help them with that, help them understand that this is the kind of organisation we are. Let's help you understand not just the work you're doing, but where you're doing it. It's easy in those three months just to have somebody detached come in and they do a piece of work that's quite discreet and they then they leave. But actually we want them to to come and work for us and knowing what they're getting into not just in terms of the content but the environment is really important yeah. I think um, some of the challenges for young people is actually knowing how to express that they have those skills in the first place um, so all of those incredible key skills that you were talking about before um, the students do have them they just don't know how to showcase them to an employer um, so it it's far from um, the students to want to go into an, an interview and start boasting about themselves, but it's really getting them to train their minds to be like, it's not boasting, it's just showing off your experience. Um, and that's something that I find that a lot of young people um, really do struggle with. So similarly, kind of things like the mentoring, things like doing um, mock assessment centres, um, are really useful for young people. Um, if you say an assessment centre to a student, they're not entirely sure if they're going for kind of like a mental examination or uh, what it is that they're going to face when they get there, let alone a six or seven hour interview with lots of different parts. So really training them and getting them to actually just understand that it's for their benefit. It's actually because lots of people find it really difficult having a face-to-face interview. But if you have um, maybe a activity where you're going to be working with different types of people an employer can really see how you um, can really see you showcase your skills in action Um, if you're going to be able to do a a psychometric test while you're there you're going to get to um, show them all of your uh, your written and your cognitive thinking on paper rather than having to express it um, verbally and it's also for employers to start thinking about different ways they can um, put different types of assessments together to really make sure that they are giving the uh, young people especially young people from uh, backgrounds where they might not necessarily have known about um, the different types of recruitment processes they may face um, but getting them to make sure that they understand how they can um, select the best young people and get them to really um yeah, bring their skills to the fore. So this is a perfect moment to turn to Cynthia and to Robert, who have been on the lookout for research to support today's discussion. Access Accountancy, the 2017 report carried out by the Bridge Group, 
made a number of recommendations on how organisations can avoid overlooking a more diverse talent pool during the selection process. Firstly, avoid using A-level or equivalent grades as a single filter for talent. The report highlights that school examinations were never designed to indicate how well someone would perform in a job, and school attainment is strongly correlated with socio-economic background. Secondly, organisations should give careful consideration to the extent to which online tests are a precise tool for assessing required competencies. The research shows that early online tests are very effective at filtering out candidates from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and some ethnic minority groups, and that performance in these tests is only weakly correlated with performance at later stages of the selection process. In 2017, the Social Mobility Index measured the top 50 UK employers who had taken the most action to improve social mobility in the workplace. It's believed to be the first ever social mobility employer index. The top 10 employers in the index include many names from the finance sector, such as Grant Thornton, KPMG, Standard Life and Deloitte UK. One of the key findings of the research consistently showed that people from more affluent backgrounds take a disproportionate number of the best jobs and that employers tend to disproportionately employ graduates who went to private schools and elite universities. Thank you, Cynthia. Robert, and always links to the references and research can be found on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And remember, that's diversity with a C, not with an S. You can also sign up for early notifications of future episodes. And please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. You can find us on all good podcast channels. And if you've enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate a rating. It all helps promote the episodes. So one of the things that strikes me as we're talking is about the blend between what uh, what schools and academia are producing in terms of talent and then also what corporates and the civil service are needing. And, and quite often what I hear is that there's a slight disconnect between uh, is, well, is the curriculum fit for purpose? and concern around STEM skills, et cetera. Um, Rosa, when you talk to organisations about that and when you go into the schools and talk about how they, they, they get their students corporate ready, can you shed some example and give some, some examples of some of the initiatives that are, that are getting those two worlds to come more closely together? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that we're really looking at kind of on that STEM agenda is um, maths. So looking at um, maths in the classroom and how that can translate to maths in, say, the boardroom. Um, so really trying to bring those two areas together. So we've got our Maths in the City programme, um, which is looking directly at those links between GCSE and A-level maths and the working world. So we've got, say, a day in the life of a trader, a day in the life of an analyst, lots of different um, roles that use maths on a day-to-day basis. Um, And it's a great way for the schools to be able to put what they're teaching the young people in the classroom into a practical context. Um, So the students will come out into an organisation and they'll get to meet volunteers from across the business that do a range of roles that um, use maths on a day-to-day basis Um, and they will do things like uh, a speed networking which is really simple so everyone loves talking about themselves loves talking about their jobs and talking to them about why they or how they use maths in their day-to-day life. Um, It's 
great when you have teams who are really passionate about the work that they do um, working with a group of young people and telling and getting the students to actually see that um, some of the things that using so we've done things like for, you know, using algebra to calculate foreign exchange transactions uh, plotting risk on a curve that sort of thing that they're doing in school all the time and actually having that aha moment mm-hmm. actually what we are learning in the classroom really does work in different roles um, and it, again great for the companies to be able to showcase those roles where they want young people to be able to go into they've got a massive gap in terms of the talent they're not able to fill those roles um, and they're able to showcase them directly to the young people who are going to be applying uh, applying for it and do you know what I think is really exciting about that is the fact that actually in this world of technological change where we're looking at new innovation in the world of fintech is actually a lot of those roles and um, those uh, structures are changing all the time and so knowing that there's that connection about going, well, actually, what you thought you could do with your maths, you can do because it's how we define it. But also to be to going back into schools with defining the new jobs and the jobs of tomorrow, which is which is incredibly exciting. So th- thank you. Thank you for that. But th- there is there is one thing that kind of keep coming back to. And we do this time and time and time again on these uh, podcasts, which is, you know, this is all well and good. Everybody's talking about diversity, and inclusion. The world needs uh, needs to know it changes. I'm Imagining the listeners are nodding along. But the question is, how do you benchmark? How do you benchmark success? And Jazz, at the top of the show, you were talking about um, leadership, but you also talked about data. And uh, there, there isn't a framework. There isn't a, uh, a sort of standard for de- inclusion uh, as, as we know it today. Is that something that you're looking at? Absolutely, yeah. And I think you're right. So so on, on so many factors, we there is there are standard data that we can use as organisations both to assess the progress that we're making within our own organisations, but actually we're really getting good at this kind of uh, kind of healthy competition that we want to kind of uh, be competition's good. Be moving I towards <laughs> absolutely, and really looking at the ways in which we can start benchmarking against each other, not just from the, for, from a competitive spirit, and which I'm all for, but actually so that we can identify who's best in class, who's really making a difference, really not just putting their money, you know, who, who's really putting their money where their mouth is, and really being able to make change, and being able to assess that change, and know that we can measure like for like, so that actually we've got some way of understanding who is best in class out and there. who's falling behind and who's falling behind absolutely and really being able to use that sort of uh, uh, approach that what we call transparency approach the transparency of our data is really important now in order for us to do that we need some benchmarkable data and in the world of inclusion we don't have that we there are no standardized measures that organizations can use across the piece that give you comparable data um, on on inclusion within organizations um, if you are four different organisations how they measure inclusion we'd probably get probably about five or six different answers and they would all be very positive and they'd, all be, and very they'd be very committed to diversity yeah, and inclusion absolutely and they would probably be in the same ballpark but the way in which you'd measure them the the denominators and numerators I'm getting into my geeky bit here but the ways in which you measure um, metrics are, will be different and so you're not actually measuring like for like you're possibly measuring a pound of grapes as opposed to a grape for example so, so really wanting to make sure that we're able to 
to, to have benchmarkable data. We need to create it. Now, government's job should be to lead. And our job here really ought to be to be providing the mechanisms and the framework within which whole society, not just the banking sector, but all employers should be able to measure inclusion. So one of the things that we've committed to doing in the strategy we published towards the end of last year um, is to develop a set of inclusion metrics by which any organisation can adopt those measures. And we will then have begin to have benchmarkable data. Not least, we've committed to being the most inclusive employer in the UK by 2020. Uh, how will we know? Because we don't know how we compare to anybody else. And, and, is, and is that with uh, other industry parties? So are, are there, you know, because a lot of this is about being held accountable to that and, and thinking about the professional bodies associated in, in that setting of those. Are, are you working with third parties on that? So we've committed to working with the Chartered Institute for Personnel Development, CIPD. Um, and CIPD really want to be making sure that diversity Diversity and inclusion is a core component of the qualities and characteristics of professional HR in the future. So they're going to be working with us really closely, as well as that wide range of partners uh, from the corporate sectors, to make sure that we come up with a set of inclusion metrics that we can all buy into, we can all use and we'd all find helpful, so that we're able to benchmark against each other and therefore find out who's top of the class, who needs to work harder, and really be able to provide that that grit in the system. And, and, to and really is that due improve. to come out this year, or what, what's, what's your, your timetable yeah. for that? So we're about to embark on the work. Um, if anybody's ever devised metrics um, that are for measure across a whole range of different environments, they know this isn't something that's going to happen overnight. So we think this is about a year to 18 months worth of work. We want to, by 2020, be able to have these measures and benchmark within the entire civil society service for ourselves so we know where we are in terms of our inclusion but we would like to be able to benchmark against other organizations at that time as well so by 2020 we want to have a set of measures that are ready out there being benchmarked and being used fantastic and and there are many reasons to be very optimistic one is to have that benchmarking the second is to look at how schools are thinking about how they engage um, and 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 curate skills fit for purpose in the workplace and also how the how the organizations financial services and other uh, industry bodies and corporates are coming together to attract this talent so that we can ultimately drive diversity it's been a fantastic conversation i want to thank you both very much indeed rosa and jazz thank you thank you This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roy Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>